Friends, I invite you to remain standing for the reading that comes on this All Saints Day from Paul's letter to the churches in Rome. We're reading the last chapter, chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. I invite your attention now to hear the Word of God. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Sincrea, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints and help her in whatever she may require of you, for she has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila who work with me in Christ Jesus and who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert in Asia for Christ. Greet Mary, who has worked very hard among you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives, who were in prison with me, for they are prominent among the apostles, and they were actually in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my relative Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord Trophina and Trophosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and greet his mother, a mother also to me. Greet Asyncretus, Phlegion, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I want to thank our musicians for a marvelous, marvelous anthem this morning. How beautiful and how appropriate to this All Saints. It is so good to be local again. Uh, we returned from our trip early in the week, and I have good news. Uh, we brought back everybody that we took, 100%. So we're grateful, so grateful to each of you. Well, it's a peculiar passage, isn't it, for public worship? Uh, after reading it, you can understand why we couldn't find a liturgist to read the Scripture this morning. <laughs> it's not a part of the common lectionary, you know, the three-year list that if you read each Sunday for three years, you'll cover the entire Scripture. It's not in the common lectionary. It's a grocery list of names, 27 if you're counting, unusual, unfamiliar, hard to pronounce names. It's actually a part of the personal greeting section which in ancient epistles always occurs at the end of the letter, which is unusual. By our standards in the 21st century, we usually say, say hello to Aunt Susie and Uncle Tom at the beginning of the letter, but this occurs at the end of the letter, as was the custom in the first century. It's also the lengthiest litany of names in all of Paul's writings, 
which is odd to me because Paul had never actually been to Rome. And so there's a question mark when we read this text, and the question is this. How on earth could the apostle have known so many people in a city that he had never visited in a church that he didn't establish? I have an answer. He knew them in other places. A little history might help at this point. In the year 49 AD, Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome because, says the historian Suetonius, of their agitation over Crestus, which is a name for Christ. Early on, the Roman government saw no distinction between Jews and Christians. After all, if you know first century history, most of the early Christians were all Jewish, and they continued meeting together in the synagogue, Jews and Christians. But as more and more Gentiles converted to Christ, tensions increased to the point that Claudius just banished the whole lot. And as they scattered, Paul met up with them in other cities. Cities like those that we visited in the last two weeks, Corinth, Ephesus, and Philippi. But after Claudius' death in 54 AD, the ban was suddenly lifted. And all of these names, all of these people came home. And Paul writes this letter, probably from Corinth, after their return to the Empire City, somewhere around 57, 58 AD. Now, I don't have to tell you, you know this if you know your church history, that Paul's letter to the church in Rome has often been a catalyst for reformation in the church. This is true from Augustine to Luther. It's true from Calvin to Wesley that this letter, especially the first 15 chapters, has been a spark for theological renewal in the life of the church. But I think you could just stop reading after chapter 15 because these names mean little or almost nothing to us. In fact, when you read this or or hear it read, it's about as stimulating as reading genealogy, really. Uh, And by the way, if you ever find yourself suffering from insomnia, take two aspirin and read the begats in Matthew 1. It'll put you right out. And yet, for some reason, Paul feels obliged to call the names. Last Sunday, many of us were in Athens, Greece, at the Acropolis, where the Parthenon was built somewhere mid-century, 5th century B.C., and it's a stone's throw away from the Areopagus. And you remember this from your study of the book of Acts, that the Areopagus was where the philosophers and city leaders of Athens met, and the apostle Paul preached to them when he visited Athens. We were making our way up to that height, the Acropolis, when we saw a group of primarily young adults putting pictures with names and faces of people who had been kidnapped by Hamas. And we looked at the names and the faces. I think it was their way of trying to make sure that we don't forget the names. 
Some of you have been to Normandy. We went several years ago, and you've seen those white crosses with the names of 9,387 American soldiers who gave their lives on a beach in a country that was not their own for the cause of freedom. Jim Hughes has scheduled a lunch for our veterans next Thursday. Next Saturday is actually Veterans Day, and it's important that we remember the names. I've been reading recently the work of Dr. Peter Lamp. Dr. Lamp is a professor of New Testament at the University of Heidelberg. He's done extensive research on the social history of the early church, and he's something of an expert in the field of onomastics. I don't know if you've heard that. Onomastics is the study and history of the origin of names. And in Dr. Lamp's commentary on the passage we just read, he notes an unusual diversity in these names. For example, 34% of the names that Paul mentions are female, and that would have been very, very unusual in the first century in a public letter to mention females. Sometimes Paul is accused of being a chauvinist, but in fact, the person he chose to deliver this letter was a woman named Phoebe. In fact, Paul refers to her as a deacon of the church in Sencrea, which is the port town of Corinth. She was a benefactor, a patron of Paul. That means she was a person of, of wealth or means who supported his ministry and his mission. In fact, we're told by historians that her home would become a house church, a meeting place for believers, and a parsonage for pastors who were traveling through. Dr. Lamp says some of the names are common of slaves or freedmen, freedwomen who were once enslaved. Incidentally, there is evidence that some of the early believers in the church actually sold themselves as slaves in order to support the needs of the church. A few names are associated with royalty, just a few servants of the palace. Some names are Jewish, some are Greek, some are Latin, some are married couples, some are singles, widows, young and old. And so in this collection of names, you begin to see an emerging social network that isn't based on shared ethnicity, status, or gender. What's happening? It turns out that Paul was pretty serious when he wrote Galatians 3.28, which says, in Christ Jesus, there isn't any Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free. There is no male nor female. And you see this in the names. Now, it's a little different in that day from the culture because in an empire that prized itself, that prized its status, its culture, its power, you see in this list a growing subculture in which all the usual distinctions are irrelevant. I'm concerned these days that we seem to be a little more adept at building community according to what we're against 
rather than what we're for. I'm troubled this morning by the rise of anti-Semitism in our own country, especially in some of our institutions of higher learning. I read just this week that in the last month, there's been 300, a 388% increase in anti-Semitic hostility and aggression. And I don't have to tell you, our Jewish brothers and sisters have too often been the scapegoat of human history. And I wonder, have we forgotten Auschwitz? Did the Holocaust happen? Have we forgotten Dachau? Any organization that exists for the sake of genocide or ethnic cleansing is not to be glorified, but opposed. Here's a name for you. Do you remember the name Martin Niemöller, the German priest who opposed the Third Reich? a Lutheran priest who at first was for the Third Reich and then later on saw where it was going. He spent eight years in prison in a concentration camp because of his stand, and his immortal words are posted in the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. These are his words. First, they came for the socialist. And I didn't speak out because I wasn't a socialist. And then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak out because I'm not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. It's troubling when our teaching of history becomes so biased by our group think that we can no longer see the complexity. Too often, I think we seek easy answers to complex situations and wind up escalating the chaos even more. Or maybe this is the problem. This is my problem. If reality doesn't fit my narrative, I don't revise my narrative. I deny reality. And there's something wrong with that. I'm thinking of Einstein's definition of insanity. Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. I remember as a senior in high school being sent by the church on a UN study tour to Washington and New York where we learned about the conflict that's 4,000 years old between Palestinians and Israelites. And we pray today both for Israel's children and Palestinian children. And we long for the day, as Isaiah said, when our swords will be beat into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks. There's something else in the text that gets my attention. Maybe it does yours. I want you to notice the deep affection and commendation that Pastor Paul attaches to each name. This is the Revised Chapel Version. Greet Prisca and Aquila, who risked their necks for me, Say hey to Mary, who has worked so hard among you. Kudos to Adronicus and Junius, who were cellmates, fellow prisoners with me, prominent among the disciples. In fact, they became Christian before I did. 
Greet Ampliatus, beloved of God, Urbanus, my right-hand man, and Persis, tireless in his efforts for God. And Rufus, I love this one, chosen of God, whose mother was also a mother to me. Brothers and sisters, all saints, greet each other with a holy kiss. There is a deep bond through a common faith between Pastor Paul and his people. Some of us experienced this on a boat in Turkey and Greece over the last couple of weeks as we followed in the footsteps of Paul. We were on a boat with 500 Methodists. If you weren't a Methodist, you couldn't get on the boat. (laughs) From all over, Kansas City, Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, Florida. And we were on our way to Corinth when we stopped to see the canal, some of you have seen it, that connects the Ionian Sea to the Aegean Sea. And while we were there, one of our group, in our group, Amy Fox, was bitten by a dog. And it was frightening. Doctors from our group, some of whom we didn't even know were doctors, run to see about her, pastors there. We surrounded her, we prayed for her. Our tour guides took her to an emergency clinic for treatment where she got her tetanus shot, and they sent us on to Corinth. A couple of hours later, while in the ancient ruins of Corinth, we were praying for Amy, and as soon as we said amen, somebody said, here she comes. And she walked right into our arms. Someone said, it's the quickest answer to a prayer that I've ever seen. In fact, one of our wise guys who is retired pastor said, I just bought a lottery ticket. Could you pray for me? (laughs) She's here today, and she's well, though she did say ever since she's had a hankering for dog biscuits, but she's well. (laughs) But it was an object lesson to me of what it means to be the church. When one of us hurts, we all hurt. When one of us celebrates, we all celebrate. When one of us grieves, we all grieve because we're family. We're kinfolk who share a purpose that is bigger than our individual lives. And Paul knew it. I wonder where he learned it. I think he learned it from his rabbi that he met on the Damascus Road, who in a vision completely rerouted Paul's life. And in Jesus, we don't see one who redeems the world single-handedly. He chooses 12 ordinary, unlikely men and a handful of women and empowers them to live out their faith. We have the names, Peter. James, John, Andrew, Bartholomew, Levi, Matthew, Thaddeus, Mary, Joanna, Susanna. And so we don't skip past the names because in those names, every name is a faith story and every name is a saint. A saint, says William Barclay, is someone who makes it easier to believe in God. That's a saint. Robert Louis Stevenson, author of Treasure Island, 
Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and other classics, grew up in Edinburgh, Scotland in the 19th century. At the end of each day when he was a boy, as darkness blanketed the city, he would watch out his window with fascination as the lamplighters would come down the street lighting the street lamps. And one night his parents spotted him, young Robert, with his face pressed against the window. And they said, son, what are you looking at? To which he replied, I'm watching a man poke holes in the darkness. And that's the task of a saint. We have a list this morning. It's a list of people who have poked holes in the darkness for us. And we will never forget. Last word. One of the names on our list this morning is Marjorie Mayer. Marjorie died several months ago on April the 8th, which was the day before Easter Sunday. She was 99. She is the eldest, I think, on our list. She was a PK, preacher's kid, or a TO, as we call them, a theological offspring, who was born in a parsonage in Lakeside, Ohio. 1923, she was born. After World War II, she was called to be a missionary in Japan. Her parents begged her not to go. But I've been called, she said. And so on August the 31st, 1948, three years after the war, she set sail on a tanker with eight other young adults from San Francisco to Yokohama, Japan, commissioned by the Board of Missions of the Methodist Church to teach in a girls' school, get this, in Nagasaki. You can understand why her father begged her not to go. She was sent by the church to build peace and reconciliation between the two countries, and she did just that. She committed to stay for three years, and she stayed for 23 years. She wrote a book about her mission. We have it in our library. It's called Repairing the Breach. And I wonder what on earth was a 25-year-old young woman doing in Nagasaki? She was poking holes in the darkness. And that's your call. And that's mine. Today, we're going to call Marjorie by name. We have her picture with the saints. And whenever I see her face, I think of Dr. Fred Pratt Green, whose hymn we will sing at the conclusion of the service that says, Rejoice in God's saints today and all days. A world without saints forgets how to praise. In loving, in living, they prove it is true. Their way of self-giving, Lord, leads us to you. And that's the task of a saint.